You're listening to Bon Appetit Foodcast, and I am Adam Rappaport. Up first this week, we have on Lisa Chang-Smith. Lisa's day job is Director of Wholesale at Hay Design, a housewares company that we are kind of obsessed with here at Bon Appetit. But her side gig is why we called her in to do a spread of nine Lunar New Year recipes for our December-January issue. Uh, she runs Yun Hay an online shop that sells Taiwanese pantry goods like fermented black beans and soy paste that come directly from Taiwan. Every year, she also hosts a Lunar New Year dinner, which is coming up this year on January 25th, and she has gotten really, really good at Chinese and Taiwanese cooking. Contributing writer Priya Krishna talks to Lisa about when the tradition started for her, how to make Lisa's astoundingly simple scallion oil noodles, and the pressure of being an ambassador of Taiwanese food as a Taiwanese-American living in the States. And after that, I chat with Test Kitchen director Chris Morocco and associate editor Christina Che about all things tofu. Uh, We share some of our favorite techniques and recipes featuring tofu in various forms, be it silken or raw or crispy. All right, here we go with Lisa and Priya. Okay, yeah, let's jump right in. So I got the chance to fill in for Julia Kramer when she went on maternity leave, and I edited a lot of the pieces she got to edit for the magazine. And your piece was the very first piece that landed on my desk, and it was actually a piece that I'd pitched. I'd said, you know, BA should cover in our holiday issue, like Lunar New Year falls in this month. It was it's a December January issue, so like we should do a Lunar New Year story and. Julia, who how do you, how do you and Julia know each other? So I know Julia from Chicago just through the art world okay. and mutual friends. So. Right. She immediately thought to you <clears throat> because I really do think that we spend so much time trying to source recipes from chefs, but I think so many of the best recipes come from home cooks, mm-hmm. people who don't necessarily do this for a living, but are just like passionate, dedicated, like everyday home cooks. And your recipes are some of the most delicious that I've seen in the magazine in a long time. Thank you. So I want to talk about your upbringing in Houston. I grew up in Dallas, not too far away. What were your Lunar New Year celebrations like growing up? Yeah, growing up, the Lunar New Year celebrations were actually not a huge part of my life the way that they are now. And I think part of that is... You know, because my parents didn't get time off. All our relatives are super far away. They didn't get time off, so they didn't travel. So the Lunar New Year was really like a red envelope situation. Like, oh, we're going to get, you know, some cash today. But my mom, who's a professor, had a lot of Chinese students that came over from Taiwan Mm -hmm. and China as graduate students at the University of Houston. And she would spend a lot of time creating a Lunar New Year celebration for them at her institution to give them kind of a sense Mm of, you know, being at home. So we would always actually go to these like offsite university Lunar New Year parties that my (laughs) mom would create. Uh, And, you know, there'd be like a lion dance and a lot of food, often catered. Did she Um, ever cook for them? She did cook for them occasionally, yeah. What kind of things would she make? She would make... Gosh, I can't even, I mean, it's bad that I can't even remember, but it was pretty basic stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's bad that I can't remember, but I think it's because I wasn't really there. Like most often it was like hosting at Chinese restaurants and, 
Yeah, just kind of being in that environment. But so there was this kind of big Lunar New Year party tradition, but it wasn't for us, the family. It was for her her student family. That's really interesting. She was more interested in... She do was it you think it was because she felt like you all were were pretty American, whereas her students she felt like she needed to give them some kind of sense of place. I think it was a sense of place thing, and I think that also it's you know like uh, she's very involved in university affairs and mm-hmm. student life, et cetera. So I think also it's like oh, there's like funding. I mean, she would always like rent a venue and like we'd do the food, and there'd be all these activities, and so we would go along with that, and that would be part of. Yeah, it would be part of our Lunar New Year celebration, but there would be no huge feast at home, for example. It would happen in so this environment. So it's funny then <laughs> that then when you moved away from home, you kind of took it upon yourself to throw this huge feast. Exactly. So uh, my sister and I, when we were both living in Chicago, we decided mm-hmm. to start doing it because we kind of missed this event, this annual event. Yeah. So it was definitely, you know, a, a reflection of my mom, although it was done a little bit differently. So I think in the article, I kind of mentioned like the food was actually not the central piece. We were doing things like, you know, it was about like drinking and games and karaoke and we had a raffle and all of this. But eventually the food became, did become the central piece, just partially because of how I kind of evolved my understanding of Chinese food, which I really didn't have an understanding of Chinese cooking until I sort of went on that journey, you know, for myself yeah. as, a, as an adult. So, so. I want to I want to talk about that. But those activities you're talking about, were those just like you and your sister being like, what are fun party activities or trying to, you know, bring some kind of tradition into the Those were, yeah, those were kind of like, what are fun party activities? But also, I mean, I have to say when I was younger, I didn't want to participate in my mom's party activities because I was a teenager and I was like, I don't want to do karaoke in front of all of these like graduate students. But it was just such a huge part of like the kind of convivial feeling. Like you don't just eat, you like eat and then hang out and do all this stuff. And it's really like loud and noisy and it's a party. So we kind of, that's kind of what we knew. So we're like, oh, we can't just have dinner. We have to do something else so and my sister's a musician so she had a setup for karaoke so we were like let's do karaoke (laughs) and you know at that time I'm very into karaoke now at the time I was like I am not into karaoke but we're gonna do this but what's um, your song my song is Wuthering Heights by Kate Bush yeah that's my song (laughs) it only comes out once in a while but that is a favorite for sure I have a few so one of my favorite parts of the story is where you talk about the evolution of the menu. So mm-hmm. tell me about that that first printed menu and how the food has evolved as you've learned more about the, the cooking of your heritage. Yeah, so when I was researching the recipes for this article, I reached out to my sister and was like, can you even remember what we cooked at the first party? And she's kind of like, oh, here's, I have a picture or some record of it. And it's, I mean, it said like, you know, stir fried vegetables and rice and snacks and just like (laughs) the total opposite of like, you know, this is very, very pre Instagram, pre Pinterest, like no one's going to be photographing this. It's just informational (laughs) for our friend group. And it was not descriptive. And I think the food also was, I don't remember it that well. I'm sure it was fine. But now the Chinese New Year cooking tradition is like, uh, it's like a research project for me, like yeah. a mini research project where I really get into what do I want to make? What are some techniques that are not every day that I would really like to execute for a big group of people? In my 20s, I moved away from Chicago for a while to mm-hmm. 
Ann Arbor and didn't I was just freelancing I was there because of a relationship I had a lot of time on my hands and I had a car so I would drive to the Chinese grocery store which is still one of my favorite activities Mm -hmm. and just start cooking things so that was around the same just after the first Chinese New Year party so I really kind of evolved my understanding of Chinese and Taiwanese cooking then and then started to apply that to the party format because otherwise it was just me and the guy that I lived with and it wasn't like enough people to like create these banquets and these feasts so um, yeah I actually started learning just through cookbooks really I mean like Fuchsia Dunlop is very influential for Chinese home cooks I started with her I've definitely kind of branched out and I really like to discover like uh you know, it's like someone's mom's blog. It's yeah. not It's not like, oh, this is like, you know, the most beautifully photographed food blog. There's no pictures. Yeah. It's just like what someone wrote down. It's probably on like Blogger and it's 15 <laughs> years old. But I found so much knowledge through sites like that. Just really people trying to record their experience and how to cook for like their kids. So walk me through the menu that you ended up creating for the magazine, which sounds just utterly delicious and I can't wait to cook it yeah this menu is not the most traditional menu Mm -hmm. but I think one thing that is kind of traditional for Chinese New Year is it's really like you know everything land and sea so you want to have seafood you want to have something you know like a bird you Mm want to have you know like beef or pork and when I sat down to discuss the menu with Julia they're like well how many like mains do you need to have? And I was like, oh, this is a totally different thing. It's like you have everything's a main and you kind of mix it all up. And I think I mentioned this in the article, but it's really traditional to do like a whole chicken because that, you know, represents mm-hmm. like, you know, oneness or whatever. But it's not actually that convenient, especially if you're having a big party to do that. So I think the gist of this menu is to try to bring in some of those elements of the diversity of a Chinese New Year menu, but also do some things that you could make ahead or that were more manageable. So I think that like the chicken wings, for example, are a really great example. Like typically, you know, you might see a whole chicken, but party wings are like the best for Mm -hmm. if you want to have you know like 10 or more people so what do you spice your chicken wings with to me it's pretty basic but it's like a soy glazed chicken wing with you know five spice and it's just braised in dark soy sauce with five spice powder it's very licorice it's very umami uh, it's pretty sweet and sticky. And in the photo, they just look like lacquered and glossy and beautiful. And you just want to like reach your hand yeah. <laughs> right now. Yeah. What are some of your other favorite dishes from that menu? Um, well, I actually really love the uh, mala fried peanuts, too. Mm-hmm. I know there's like a um, kind of a it's like a snack you can purchase in Chinatown that I was trying to imitate. So that's like a very spicy, it's very like MSG, very salty. Um, But I like that because, um, you know, when when people get to the party, it's just like, you're likely running behind if you're me and you just need (laughs) to put something out on the table and it's great with beer. Um, But I also just think that that's like a great everyday recipe for, yeah, just for like a snack food or any kind of entertaining. And it's like salty and savory and really like satisfies the like you know you walk in and I'm sure people are like smelling those amazing flavors and mm-hmm. they are able to just sort of get a little taste of it yeah exactly first blush 
Uh, the scallion oil noodles are a personal favorite of mine. So that's a, my mom was from Taiwan. So that's a very, to me, it's a very Taiwanese dish in a way, although there's many different versions of it. But this version features soy paste. And I think soy paste is like the ingredient that, you know, no one's really like, I don't know what the word is, but like, kind of revealed soy paste yeah, to the Western about, world. Tell me yeah. more about soy paste. Yeah, so soy paste is, I mean, it's a lot like oyster sauce, which I think a lot of people mm-hmm. know what that is, but it doesn't have any seafood in it. Um, but it's a thicker soy sauce that traditionally is made with soy sauce and glutinous rice. So uh, people would just cook soy sauce with glutinous rice, almost like they were making a congee mm-hmm. or a rice porridge, and that would become its own sauce. But the rice kind of makes it a little bit sweeter. It creates a glaze. Um, it has a very different profile than both soy sauce and oyster sauce. Mm-hmm. And it's <clears throat> just, you know, it's a, just a very staple part of a Taiwanese cooking routine. And often you throw it in at the very end, unlike soy sauce, which you, you know, might mix up with like cornstarch or something to make like a yeah. thicker glaze. Like soy paste, you literally just throw it in at the very end and it kind of is like a one and done. What uh, kind so of things would you would you put it on? This sounds very simple, but just making fried rice, for example, I yeah. just throw it in at the very end. Mm. Um, if I'm shredding like pork and tofu to stir fry with like, let's say se- shredded celery, at the very end I would put that in with some chilies and garlic and just like stir fry it up. And it really just is such a kind of authentic home flavor to mm-hmm. me, but it's an ingredient that it's very hard to find. There's one that you can buy in the Chinatown at grocery stores typically, um, but it's just such a staple ingredient for Taiwanese cooking that I was really happy to feature it. Those scallion oil noodles were by far the thing that I craved the most when I was editing this story. and. Just it was it's such a simple recipe. I think mm-hmm. it has no more than a couple of ingredients. Yeah. But just seeing the way that they all transform, it just uh it's just like what you do when you chop up a bunch of scallions and mix it with soy paste. Yeah. And toss it on noodles. Mm. Yeah, it's and it really when you so you cook the scallions over kind of a medium heat covered in oil and it just draws all of the oils and flavor and sweetness out of the scallions Mm -hmm. and then transform the scallions into this like crispy topping and the beautiful thing about it is that you can just store that scallion oil more or less indefinitely in the fridge and just mix up a bowl of these scallion Uh, oil noodles and then the other thing you can do is actually shallot oil noodles which is also very Taiwanese so you do the same thing but it's with shallots Mm -hmm. if you've ever seen like fried shallots Mm -hmm. um, yeah Mm -hmm. so that's how they make fried shallots but the oil is, you know, absolutely the best part <laughs> when you're deep frying shallots. Yeah. <laughs> but you can also do that where you mix it with like soy paste. The Shanghainese recipe, I think they cook like light soy sauce, dark soy sauce, and sugar all together to make a thicker sauce. But I love this one because it's just like skip that step, throw in the soy paste, oh, and you're done. Yum. So, so talking about soy paste and how, you know ingredients that you love you couldn't really find uh here in the u.s that's why you um launched your um company yenhai pantry Mm -hmm. um so i'd love to sort of hear about you know why you launched it and sort of what kind of feedback you would give to american grocery stores in terms of their you know availability of immigrant ingredient immigrant cuisines and, and ingredients that you know people from 
different cultures that are not Western might want? Yeah, so um, the Yunhai Taiwanese Pantry is uh, really an effort to bring over some of the amazing artisanal, traditional products, uh, ingredients, food products, pantry products from Taiwan and make them available here. So I think that, you know, people have become so used to getting, you know, any kind of, I mean, I'm just going to say European product, for example, right. that they want. Like you can get yep. amazing pasta made at like a convent in Sicily, yeah. <laughs> but to get like a higher grade soy sauce is basically next to impossible. And yeah. to me, that just seems like it's just because no one's done it. It's right. not because people don't want it. So over my adult life, I visited Taiwan many times. And just, you know, originally I was doing things with my mom. It's bigger hotels and the night market, which are great, Mm -hmm. but eventually kind of branched out and started to get to know people who were, you know, food entrepreneurs. It's very easy and common actually to be a food entrepreneur in Taiwan and just like always dreamed of bringing these products back. So Mm -hmm. I would smuggle them in my suitcase I mean, it's like legal to bring over, so it's not really smuggling, but I would just, you know, bring over cases and give them to friends. People would ask me for refills. I'd go do it again. At some point, I decided to just kind of bite the bullet and start importing Mm -hmm. these goods. And I think that the goal there is, you know, Chinese grocery stores, I'll get to the Western grocery store question in a second, but Chinese grocery stores are great. They're like a really key part of being able to make this food. The price is right. But if you want something special or you want to get a gift or you want to just take things to the next level, you really don't have that option here. Yeah. So that's kind of what, what I'm providing. And I think the other side of it is that I care a lot about the visibility of Taiwan, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's in the news a lot now. Yeah. But I think that um, there's a lot to say there just about you know, what Taiwan is and help familiarize people with, um, you know, what our contemporaries in Taiwan are doing, Mm -hmm. just like from a, you know, kind of creative and commercial perspective even. Uh, And then the final point about the Yunhai Taiwanese Pantry is that there's such an amazing renaissance of, you know, Chinese food and like breakout Taiwanese restaurants and things Mm -hmm. like that. But if you're not in like New York, San Francisco, LA, it's pretty hard to experience yeah. that food. And the only way you can experience it is if you can cook it. And you can only cook it if you can actually get the right ingredients. And a lot of that is like a labeling issue and just like knowing what to look for. So making some of this stuff legible and easy to get so that people can actually, you know, cook the food is a big part of my goal. Yeah. I mean, it's always, I mean, it has always driven me nuts that all non-Western cultures are crammed into the quote-unquote ethnic aisle right. in a Western grocery store, and you can get 20 kinds of pasta, but there's a single brand of miso, a single type of soy sauce. Right, right, right. It seems just wild to me. I don't I don't understand. I still don't understand why Whole Foods doesn't carry curry leaves. Seems like an yeah. essential. It seems like an essential. Yeah, I think... <laughs> I live in Queens, in Jackson Heights, Elmhurst, where it's actually kind of interesting to see, because I think all these grocery stores are essentially like franchises, Mm -hmm. and the person who owns the franchise does the buying for the store. And I love going into all the grocery stores and seeing like, oh, this one is like halal focused, even though it's like a sea town. There's like all the stuff you can actually get, which I think is just such a reflection of the vibrant community. But definitely when you get out of Queens, 
New York, it becomes much harder to procure some of the ingredients. And I don't know the answer to that because I think like, yeah, I mean, I don't know how to run a grocery store, but the turnover and shelf life is such a big part of it that even if, you know, they carried all these goods, making sure that it's fresh and has a turnover that's needed to like help these stores survive is likely a challenge. So I think that the online kind of e-commerce, you know, for better or worse, probably worse, Amazon is yeah. like a really good option for people who are wanting to cook the food. Totally. It's been interesting to see who my customers are because I've sold a lot of product and this mm-hmm. is my side gig, so I'm not even really actively marketing <laughs> it. And like most of the names that are, of the people that are buying the product are not Chinese names. So that's, that's an indication to me that, and for example, fermented black bean, it's not like, oh, hot sauce, I want to put this in my breakfast sandwich. It's like, who are all these people buying fermented black beans? Like it's an it's an ingredient that you use to cook. You like used to really cook authentic Chinese food. So to me, that's really encouraging. That's like, so promising. Yeah, to like hear. people yeah. want to cook this food. They just need to have access to the ingredients. And totally, which I feel that access to ingredients is a game changer. Like here at Bon Appetit, a recipe you know, all of a sudden becomes not simple if it requires going to a specialty grocery Mm -hmm, store. mm -hmm. If grocery stores offered more diverse ingredients, if ingredients were more readily accessible, people would realize that actually like there is a world of simple food beyond, Mm -hmm. you know, your roast chickens, your your pastas. Right. You can make scallion oil noodles and they only require three ingredients. And yes, one of them is soy paste, but Right. Buy soy paste once, and you'll use the you'll use it forever. Yeah, um, and it's just like teaching people this is definitely a, a barrier for sure. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about sourcing because I imagine was it I imagine it was it was difficult like when you were going to Taiwan and sort of trying to be this middleman between American consumers and these producers was that tough? Yeah. It, it is tough. I mean, it was tough and it is tough. But my background, you know, during the day has been in basically like supply chain, sourcing, yeah. logistics, sales. So I feel like I'm well equipped to do this, which also makes me feel like, oh, I'm giving back to Taiwan. I'm taking the things I learned here and like representing Taiwanese producers. Yeah. But I think that, you know, the hardest part is, first of all, finding a really great product that's going to be consistent every time. I think the second hardest part has actually been convincing people to sell to me because they have a strong local market there. Right. In the case of the soy sauce producers, producers that I work with, Yu Dingxing, they have a small paved yard. I mean, it's big to me, but as far as the soy sauce factory goes, it's very small. But that is their production area. Yeah. And they have a capacity. Everything's aged in terracotta barrels. So it's not like, oh, I can just pump out an extra 8,000 bottles for you. They have a limited capacity they can make per year. And getting them to commit part of that to me, which is also a growing market, is a challenge. So I had to go there and kind of meet them. And I have a partner in Taiwan, but yeah, like getting, and a lot of people have just said no. Yeah. They've come back to me since because of articles and press. And they know <laughs> that I'm serious, but I think that is um, a big challenge. And then the third thing is just getting everything here in one piece. Yeah, You're shipping like many, many, many glass bottles yeah. very far. And if one breaks, it contaminates all the rest of the labels. Have you had some like disaster scenarios with that? I have had a couple disaster scenarios. So the first one was that my first 
shipment of soy sauce did have breakage. Oh, gosh. So a lot of the bottles were stains, and I don't think, you know, I, I'm not making money on this venture yet, but I definitely lost money on yeah. that in a big way. Um, it was a great learning experience. Um, but then the other is that I had gotten a big shipment right actually before the article uh, came out. I had ordered this big shipment to kind of be ready for people who wanted to purchase it. And I got it all up into my like small studio in Greenpoint where I'm fulfilling things from. And it was like 20,000 lanyards. And I was like, oh, what man. is this? This oh, is supposed gosh. to be soy sauce. So there was like a big mix up <laughs> in the supply chain. It all got worked out. But that was like a nerve wracking moment because that was actually not my fault at all. Yeah. It was just a fluke. But there's so many things that can go wrong. You know, the human element is the key element in logistics, even though it seems automated. It's like someone is literally picking up. Yeah your thing with your piece of paper taped to it and putting it on a different boat and you're just hoping that everything goes according to plan. Yeah, I mean, it is somewhat similar to what you do during your day job, which I want to briefly touch on because you have an extremely cool day job working (laughs) at like the trendiest sort of design company called Hay. Yes. (laughs) Um, And... I feel like everyone here at BA has like serious envy for <laughs> everything to come out of hay. So I'm curious to hear a little bit about that job and if that helps with with your current job. I know obviously you know a lot about supply chains, but has there been a specific instance where you were like, oh, thank God I learned that at hay. I knew how to do that here. Yeah, yeah, definitely my experience at hay. And also previously I was working at a smaller company called Areaware, but we were essentially coordinating you know, production and imports and also customer expectations and all of that. So I do have a lot of experience with that. Um, And in any instance where you're moving products from, you know, one side of the world to the other, or even actually not that far, like you just have to be prepared for what could happen and how to handle it. So I think that uh, it definitely has made a huge impact. What I love is that I'm able to work in two different worlds at once without them conflicting. So it's kind of wonderful design world where, you know, it's accessories and furniture and home, but the other side of that is actually, you know, food and entertaining. And so it's such a like wonderful experience to take the same skill set and kind of take the same skill set and kind of apply that to a couple of different areas. But like those things are are interlinked, you know, Mm -hmm, what you're serving your food in, you know, the creating the right vibes for a good dinner party. Mm -hmm. This is something I think about a lot because I published a cookbook about my Indian American upbringing is do you feel a sort of pressure or any a burden to, to represent the Taiwanese community in a certain way do you feel like a responsibility to sort of represent that cuisine responsibly now as as someone who has a your own company and who's now like actively promoting this cuisine yeah I do and I think that the it gets complicated because of just the history of Taiwan so you know being culturally Chinese but from Taiwan is like a pretty interesting position to be in. And I think that Taiwan is a really interesting place because a lot of people may not be aware that it's its own country and it's one of uh, Asia's kind of most interesting democracies. It's 
actually converted itself from kind of a military state to a democracy peacefully Mm -hmm. in the 90s. So it's it's a younger democracy than me, and it has seen peaceful transfer of power, you know, over regular elections for the duration of that time. And this is kind of all without the support and recognition of most of the countries in the world. So due to China's diplomatic relations with most of the rest of the world, it's not a member of the UN, it's not recognized as a country by the United States. So the result is that there's also this kind of new Taiwanese identity coming out. So when my mom moved to Taiwan, she she was actually born in Taiwan, but her parents were from China. Mm-hmm. So there was this moment that there were people from China coming to Taiwan. My generation is a little bit more like whether your parents are from China or they're Aboriginal or you know they've been in Taiwan uh, predating that big Chinese migration, there's this like really wonderful melting pot of what like a new Taiwanese identity is that is very, very distinct from China. So I think talking about that is, I mean, I'm even having some difficulty articulating it quickly, you know, on this podcast, but representing that through food is pretty difficult because a lot of the dishes have, you know, their roots in China. So they're Chinese dishes, but they're also Taiwanese dishes because they've become significant in the daily lives. And inevitably, (laughs) no matter what you say, someone is going to disagree and say, no, actually, that's this. Yeah. This dish actually has this in it. And that sort of, I feel like the burden that first generation and second generation Americans from other countries face. It's like we're trying to introduce our heritage to people, but the members of our own community are like, oh gosh, like, okay, this person is the the ambassador for this cuisine, but like when they need us to do a perfect job and anything less than perfect or that doesn't match their own experience is is blasphemous because yeah or like inauthentic yeah or or, yeah I hate I hate the word authenticity it's so silly to me but like you know it's the same thing in the BA test kitchen it could be sort of more representative of what America looks like and as a result I feel like all of the POC in the kitchen carry this enormous burden with them like you know Andy with Persian cuisine Mm -hmm. me with Indian cuisine and it's 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 tough and I feel like for anyone going into a food business where you're trying to teach Americans about your culture, it's just like inevitably one of those things you have to deal with and you have to get used to people being like, well, that's not exactly mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. Or like, you didn't do this. You have not represented me well. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is a huge burden. I think like that the way that I go about it is essentially just trying to examine my own experience and the things mm-hmm. that I've learned and be, you know, as genuine a student of the culture and the cuisine as possible and pass on, you know, those learnings or discoveries to the people that, you know, might follow me or that I encounter. And I think that that's essentially all that I can do because I can't fake it. But totally. at the same time, I have, you know, a deeply passionate interest in kind of uncovering my background and culture and, and sharing that with, you know, friends, family and, you know, customers and people that cook my recipes. I think one thing I love to do is actually spend a lot of time reading because there's I guess there's this version of like, OK, what in my family cook and what are the products they like? And it's really easy to kind of say like, oh, I always buy the one with the red label that my mom gets. Mm-hmm. That's great. But at the same time, there's people in Taiwan that are my age that are, 
you know, innovating on what Taiwanese cuisine is, and also maybe you know, just like in the states or Brooklyn or whatever, there's like a huge quote unquote return to traditional, you know, return to the land or right. natural fermentation. That's all going on right now, concurrently. So I wasn't privy to that just by kind of following the traditions of my family. So there's like this new element of discovery of like, well, what are our contemporaries doing in Taiwan right now or elsewhere? And kind of bringing that over and sharing that like, hey, this is not what, you know, my mom's used to, but actually it's really exciting right now and people are really getting into it. And it's also a lot of that is coming, you know, from west to east as much as east to west. And so it becomes more of a dialogue and less about you know, what's the perfect version of this recipe or what is the exact right ingredient to use here. So that's been right. a pretty interesting experience. So, I mean, obviously Lunar New Year is this holiday that's full of symbolism, but, you know, looking at your celebration now, what does that holiday mean to you? I think that the holiday for me is really like, um, you know, it's an opportunity to share my culture and also what I've learned about my culture and particularly food Mm -hmm. with friends and family. And it isn't, yes, it's about setting the tone for the year, but the symbolism is like, you know, okay, we got to like out with the bad and with the new, like (laughs) just like surplus and wealth and health and all those things are important. But uh, for me, the Lunar New Year is really like about a gathering. And also it's, at this time of year where at least in New York is, you know, pretty cold and dark and dreary. And uh, it's great to be able to have a celebration that's very vibrant and bright and fun. And also I love that the menu can change from year to year. It doesn't have to be like, this is the traditional, you know, whatever Thanksgiving menu. Like sometimes that can feel so limiting, but for Chinese New Year menu, it's like whatever I feel like this year. So that's what I love the most about this story is that, (laughs) you know, Lunar New Year can be what you want it to be. Yeah. And I think that's awesome. Well, those are all the questions I have. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Che, I feel like I'm ready for more tofu in my life. I'm very, I'm happy to hear that. I think you've been having a moment in the last year or so. I would say maybe an, an, an enlightening, an enlight, enlightenment, an enlightening. Enlightenment has happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is great because you've uh, you've gotten on a train that Chris and I have been on for years. Quite quite a while. But Chris, sorry, let me, just to put myself in perspective. Like, yeah. <laughs> being of a certain age, like I, as someone like you who went to Oberlin and mm. hung out in the co-op, like I just remember those days like at Berkeley, like someone's like, dude, I'm gonna make a tofu scramble for breakfast. Oh, and they're like throwing a bunch of tofu in a pan and like underripe tomatoes and onions and button mushrooms. I know. And it's just a disaster. Like a walk the size of a like large sled, you know, <laughs> just like shoving ingredients around, like dousing everything in Bragg's liquid aminos. It was dark. <laughs> it was, and like I didn't, I was, yeah, I was not enlightened yet into the cuisines of the world as I should have been, but I was a, you know, a dumb teenager. And I think I just got off on the wrong foot with tofu, especially in the 70s and 80s. It was very like health food store. And just, there was not a lot of good cooking there. So Chris, when did you start cooking more with tofu in a way that was sort of more in step with like the great cuisines of the world and, and 
in really appreciating tofu for what it could bring to the table instead of just like substitute for meat. Yeah, completely. Um, I, I feel like we um, we had a Mapo tofu recipe years and years ago that Danny Bowien did for us when we did a story with Mission Chinese Food, yeah. if not mistaken. And he and Knowlton went to China together. Yeah, and I just remember tasting that and just thinking, I just need more of that. I need more of that in my life. And what, like to have tofu, I didn't even know that silken tofu was a thing, you know, and the way it functions in that dish as this kind of like negative silky space in between, you know, cr like, you know, kind of burnished crumbles of um, seared pork and Szechuan peppercorns and pops of like bright aromatics and, you know, maybe a little fermented black bean or soy. He's describing this so well because he legitimately just made this for us for lunch. Yeah. Like we just ate Mapo tofu. Fresh in mind. <laughs> Fresh in body. And I think what was so fascinating was just you know, this idea that like, yeah, tofu doesn't have to be this weird kind of substitute for something else. It's its own thing to be celebrated. And, you know, and then personally, I just sort of realized in that moment, you know, it just also just needs a lot of flavor. You need to surround it in flavor. You need to, you know, personally, I usually try to just kind of almost obliterate it with flavor, but always prizing the texture that it can take on, whether you take you know, a pressed tofu and make it very crispy, or if you just take silken tofu and let it be silken and kind of gloriously, you know, kind of rich. Okay, can I say, the so to me, the idea of using tofu as a substitute for another food, often meat, is like a very weird new concept to me. That, that was something I didn't know people did for a long yeah. time. Because like my intro to tofu was extremely organic and it wasn't it wasn't like a hippie crunchy thing. It was just this is a way of eating and a way of life. And so, you know, you know I'm Korean. My parents are Korean. People eat so much tofu in not just Korea, but in, in all the Asian cultures. And the thing is that like you will not really often, I feel like, see tofu preparations in which um, it's like just plain and mm -hmm. not not fussed with. It's usually put into a situation where it's an aggressively flavored stew or soup. Um, we'll we'll talk about that. We'll talk about some of those things later, mm -hmm. I think. But you know, like kimchi, for example, amazing natural pairing for tofu because it it is so pungent. It has so much flavor that the tofu is it's like playing a part. It plays the part of like flavor neutralizer and, and complement. Um, so to me, it was always just, oh, this is, this is an ingredient that belongs in this dish, not an ingredient I'm using in place of like meat. Yeah. I Does think, that make sense? I mean, yeah, I, I, I do feel like it is respected for what it is as a vital ingredient in the cuisine, as opposed to, I think in this country in the seventies and eighties, it was kind of marginalized as a health food, you know, substitute for sure. And, and it, it got an unfair bad rap because people, I think, were just not cooking it that well. Right. And I think they were trying to cook with it as though it were, you know, chicken thighs and they're yeah. like weeknight, whatever, chicken kind of repertoire. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, you can't, you, I mean, you can't quite get away with that and like really be like prizing flavor. Like what you're talking about, Christina. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like the way that tofu just took on so much flavor in those recipes that we did um, with Zoe Kim, you know, for the Korean, you know, kind of cooking primer. It was just unbelievable. I feel like in, in the conversation about tofu, it's very important to distinguish between the, the types in the family. Yes. Because a lot of what we just talked about actually is related to silken tofu, which I kind of feel like is the, it's the dark horse. It's the underdog. 
Yeah. Um, and most people who are new to tofu, I think, are probably venturing in through the extra firm or firm types of tofu. And I yeah. feel like, I don't know, do you want to talk about like kind of what the sure. difference is? Well, yeah. So like um, what you're talking about, firm and extra firm tofu in those classifications have to do with pressed tofu. So basically you make soy milk and then you coagulate it with um, like a calcium or magnesium salt. So you kind of have like a curds and whey situation and you gather those curds up and then you basically form them into blocks and you press them. So how much water you expel dictates like what, you know, if it's firm or extra firm. And that's like, I feel like that's a lot of people's way into tofu, you know? Yeah, it's like, it's the block, it's the, it's, the block it's, tofu. It's like more, if you're referring to it as a block, you're yeah, talking it's, about. It's more readily available, I feel like, at least like in my neighborhood, whereas silken tofu- Tofu's at the bodegas. Yeah. It's, it's, it's out like, there. I feel like I don't see silken tofu in those kinds of environments as much, you know, and that's like that's tofu where you have like a richer soy milk that's then set, but it's not pressed like you haven't broken it into yeah, so kind of curds. I hate to use the word mouthfeel, but Christina, <laughs> describe the mouthfeel. Who, of, me? Yeah, of silken tofu. So weird to hear you say Christina. I know, right? I can't believe che. I just said that. I just said, <laughs> just I, just, I, just, I just said mouthfeel and Christina in the same sentence. Well, <laughs> of silken tofu, you said. Yeah. Okay, Andy just used a really good word oh, to describe it. I don't think you have to go weird before you just go like <laughs> with the, with what it actually is. He called is. silken tofu trembling. Ooh, because it is jiggly kind of. It's very, jiggly. very jiggly. It's got that kind of custard jello-ish Texture it's to almost, it. It's yeah. almost like you can't really it's chew it. Flan like. Yes. 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 You know, you like can't. the way you sort of if you if you move a plate of flan, it kind of wobbles and, and it shakes. can kind of break if you shake it yeah. enough. Yeah. 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 It kind of like cleaves off a mm -hmm. little bit. You know what it is? It's spoon tofu. You can't eat it with chopsticks. You can't eat it with a fork. You have to eat it with a spoon. Yeah. yeah. I was just telling you before. I I was like, where did I get that tofu? And we used to order from this restaurant, Legend Chinese, on Seventh Avenue in Chelsea, which has since closed. Unfortunately, it was a good restaurant, but they would do like the sort of cubes, broken cubes of cold uh, silken tofu with like a ginger scallion mm -hmm. sauce. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, I didn't realize it was silken. Yeah, and like that with, you know, a bunch of other things. And it was nice, A, because if you're getting, you know, whether you're getting meats or this and hot vegetables and stir fry, to have that cold sort of, mm. it's just so comforting in your mouth. I hate to keep talking about your <laughs> mouth, but there's something about it. It's just like, oh, it's just such a, it's such a compliment to everything else on the table. It's unlike it's unlike most other textures I feel like we are used to eating. Yeah. If you think about just the foods that we eat on a regular basis, the closest thing I can think of that feels comforting in that same way is maybe like softly scrambled eggs. Yeah, like I love those. Yeah. And I think what's interesting what you said, Chris, is that, um, and if you look at silken tofu and, ma and the mapo tofu dish, which has like the, the spicy pork and all that mm -hmm. sort of stuff, it acts as a balance to all the other assertive elements going on there, but it doesn't get overwhelmed by them. It still mm. sort of retains its integrity. Yeah. Like certain times bland things, they just soak up everything else that's in a, a dish and then they just lose what they are. Mm -hmm. It kind of it maintains stays present. its, I don't want to say blandness, but it's neutralness. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's really Neutral is a good word. Yeah. So let's talk about cooking some. So let's say we start with the firm tofu which is comes typically comes like in a block um, it's in the refrigerated section it's usually near the eggs i find you guys were saying <laughs> that you're not like sort of loyal to any one brand it's thoughts on buying it any advice 
I, I do like Hodo Soy's firm tofu because it's not usually packed in water. It's kind of shrink-wrapped. Mm -hmm. So my biggest problem with firm and extra firm tofu, not style in general, is just that it's packed in just plain water. It's like there's no salt anywhere. I don't know if salt, you know, would inhibit some aspect of the process, but part of like what I'm often trying to do in the tofu recipes that I've developed is just kind of get rid of some of that excess water. That's why like when you drain that block, just taking it out of its water usually isn't enough. Like you need to drain it. You yeah, you guys make a point it. in our February issue, we wrote up a recipe for our crispy and soy, what's it called? Crispy- Maple soy glaze. Crispy- That's yours, Crispy right? tofu yeah. with maple soy glaze. Christina, so Christina, Che made fun of me because I'm not a big tofu cook. But that first step of when you get the block of taking some paper towels and trying to squeeze out as much of that moisture as yeah. you can because you're going to then fry it. towels. Say what? Or dish towels. Or dish towels. Yeah, we're right. trying to cut down on our uh, disposable paper <laughs> no, towels. No, I have that habit too. I'm trying to get out of it. It's hard. It's hard and it feels, actually sometimes you know what I'll do because it's just water in the end. If I use the paper towels to drain the tofu, then I'll kind of like rinse the paper towels in water under the sink and then dry just like them. let them dry and then oh, use wow. them for something else. But yeah, if, you have a, if you're the person, we're, and this kind of gets back to our... Um, sustainability mission statement that Chris and I talked about on the pod, just being a bit more sensible about what we use in the kitchen and being a little less wasteful. But if you have a bunch of like bistro salad dish towels, well, yeah, why not use that to sort of squeeze out the water? Anytime you're frying, water is your enemy, right, Chris? Oh, big time. Yeah. So, I mean, that just gives you the best possible head start in terms of getting that tofu crispy and just concentrating its flavor. You know, you still have plenty of kind of sponginess, you know, left to kind of soak up like, you know, in this case, it's like maple soy glaze or yeah. in another so application gonna, could be I'm, something else. I'm going to walk through this recipe. Oh, that's wow. all right with you guys. Okay. Can I just tell you one yeah. thing that sure. I really like that I, I do at home all the time? So you know how the top of the tofu block package is, it, it's kind of like sealed with a thin layer of plastic. Yep. So when I you feel like you're about to blow my mind. So when you open it, my favorite way to drain the tofu is to take take the block out of the package, wrap it in a towel, put it on a plate, and then you take the empty box and you put a 28 ounce can of something like tomatoes, and you put it in the package. It fits perfectly and then you put that on top of the towel wrapped tofu. Whoa. And that becomes like just your your weight. So the container is going to be the same size as a block of tofu, and the, and the can fits in the container. Like, perfectly. It's just oh, very satisfying. Cool. Wow. Okay, so you, you, you squeeze out the as much liquid as you can. Then you sort of slice them into little dominoes, almost, mm -hmm. depending on the size of the block, about half inch thick, well, let's say. And then you want to use a decent amount of neutral oil, like grapeseed or canola. There's nothing worse than when people fry things, like whether it's a chicken cutlet, and there's not enough oil in the pan, and it just gets kind of... Those browned dark and spots. blackened and yeah. spots like you don't use enough oil because like you're going to drain it out anyways gets nice and crispy on both sides probably four minutes a side or so and then you tilt the pan drain out all the excess oil and then into the pan goes a mixture of soy sauce maple syrup thinly sliced ginger Am I crushed, anything? crushed red pepper flakes crushed yep. red pepper. and so that soy sauce and maple sort of infuses the crispy tofu blocks that are frying, you, you put it back over heat, and then the ginger gets this cool, caramelly crispiness mm -hmm. to it. And then you just put that on rice, some slivered uh, scallions, and it's so good. Kimchi. Kimchi on the side. Yep. So anyway, that that's sort of my gateway tofu recipe. I think it's a lot of people's gateway. Crispy tofu. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what's not to like about it? 
it's so, so good. good. You you really do a lot to kind of transform the texture and yeah, get those like kind of crispy edges, but then just like get yeah, get the water out, get the flavor in. Mm. Yeah, I feel like the way I the way I've started thinking about it is that like a tofu that's like been um, you know pressed. Mm-hmm. It's you're basically like wringing out a sponge. Yes. And then you're reintroducing <laughs> better flavors. Yeah, you're, you're, you're reintroducing flavored like a liquid in the form of a sauce or a marinade or something back into it. Right. Because and this is a good distinction to make, you know, a pressed tofu like firm or extra firm will actually absorb other liquids, whereas silken tofu is not absorbing anything. It's like, you know, kind of like, yeah, it's like custard. You know, mm-hmm. things can coat the outside of it, but it's not mm-hmm. actually absorbing. It's, it's interesting that you just mentioned, like, in terms of the other elements going on in a dish, which is so important in so much cooking. Like, what is that balance of acid and sweet and salty and spicy? Yes, yes. I think in the case of tofu, as Chris said, if it's firm or extra firm, use it in the context of a really flavorful sauce or marinade or, or something else, something that's going to reintroduce all that flavor that you you um, really want to taste in every bite. And then with silken tofu, you want to probably put it in a dish like mapo or like a kimchi stew or something where it's going to be next to really flavorful mm-hmm. other bits of things. So you have a nice variety of, of bite and yeah. contrast. You mentioned speaking of marinade, uh, you said one recipe you love is from oh, Bonapadee. Oh, love. Spicy love. tofu crumbles. Talk to, talk to us about those. Oh, that's not the one I thought you were going to choose. Yes. <laughs> you just... I, I like those two. I like them both. I like them both. Which, I all right, which two, one do you want to talk about? I would love to talk about the marinated tofu with peanuts and charred bean sprouts, mm. which this was, a, this was from an recipe old- Recipe by Peter Serpico. Oh. Oh, from Philadelphia. Yeah. Yes. Pretty crazy. I remember this one. Yeah. So this was, um, I, I think it was a story where we asked, uh, this was years ago, we asked some chefs to contribute weeknight recipes that they would make for their own families. And this was his contribution. And it's really cool. My favorite thing about this dish, which is really perfect for warm weather or just when you really don't want to pull out a pan at all, like you don't want to cook anything, is this is a raw tofu dish. So you you really have to taste it to believe it, too, because like this is one of the few passes I will give to like just total like straight up raw pressed tofu. Oh, I'm so glad you like this, too. Yeah, I really I I wax poetic about it often. So you cube the raw tofu. And I think what does he call for firm or extra firm? firm? Okay, so firm. You could do it with extra firm. Yeah. Why not? Uh, So you cube that and then you toss it in a mixture of soy sauce and brown sugar and ginger and some jalapeno, and then you um, just like toss the tofu to coat, and then you let it sit for half an hour. Can I have a question? Yes. Interject. Firm mm-hmm. tofu. That's like if you ever get like pod thai with tofu, it's like it's the real. It's almost like it's a lot denser and almost not sometimes chewier. that's pressed tofu. I feel like it's like a pressed tofu that might have been marinated, and it's like it's a firm tofu, but that's actually been like pressed as part of the production process. Okay. So it's like that very thin strip that's yes. very meaty. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's like it's it, it's sort of a yeah. I feel like it's like a um, an which is which is firm tofu is still it's firm ish. It's still soft. It can still break apart and everything. Yeah. Firm tofu is all is very similar to the stuff that you're buying the extra firm stuff that you're buying to make that crispy maple soy tofu. It just has a little bit more water in it mm-hmm. still, so it's a little bit more delicate. But that's really all. So this one is like a, a, a very refreshing summer salad almost. So you got the you got the tofu, then what are you doing with it? Oh, so you let it sit for about 30 minutes. And then when you're ready to eat, you can make a pot of rice. 
you very quickly char some fresh bean sprouts. Love bean sprouts. Just for like a couple minutes. They're so good. And then you like top, so then you put rice into a bowl, you spoon over the tofu, you top it with like crushed toasted peanuts, the bean sprouts, lime wedges, um, you know, more jalapeno if you want. It's so, um, just like so many textures. The marinade itself is really flavorful because you have so much soy and ginger in there. Mm-hmm. And you get some brown sugar mm-hmm. and you have a little jalapeno. It's so it's so great. That sounds delicious. Like I said, on a hot summer day. Mm-hmm. I would bookmark that for a summer newsletter. I don't yeah. know. I don't know how to bookmark things. I just mm-hmm. meant mentally. Okay. That sounds awesome. But I also like the the tofu crumbles because those those look like crisp those look like a Super Bowl snack or something. Yeah. So do you remember what story that's from? Just from that photo. I'm wait, that's I'm, so I'm gonna funny. tell you. Hold it's on a, a good, second. It's a good test. <laughs> Tofu, 2016. Oh, wait, hold on. Gosh, I have like so many windows open right now. Hold on a second. I'm like, all right. I was going to make a boomer joke. I want. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say it was definitely like a package of some sort with a lot of things going on. Because it was shot against white. You know, what he, you know what it is. Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, Peter and Monk shot it. God bless them. It was, was it the, ch- no, it wasn't the chili primer, was it? Mm-hmm. No. It was mise en place. What the heck was that? <laughs> it was a story that I really loved. Oh, was that the opener that had all the little things? Yeah, the yeah, overhead. Yeah. Like, it was kind of like how restaurant chefs have their like station with all the little yes. bits. So this was what, 2016? Yeah. Okay, so this is when Sweet Green, et cetera, yes. are blowing up, like taking over the nation. And so I think the idea was... Oh, like you can you can sweet green it up in your own kitchen. <laughs> if you like have take all two these hours to make things, ten different ten little, little toppings and yep. crumbles and crispies and whatever, which is not true by the way. That does not take two hours. That was a lie. Well, um, we were trying to do meal prep, you know. <laughs> um, fair enough. And then we would show you all these really cool pairings and suggestions for ways to combine all of those little those little toppings that you made into lunch or dinner on the fly that kind of thing. i feel like this was back in the era that i think we've gotten through and we're at a better place now but when i was always like why can we make this less complicated why why does this who's gonna make this i know there was a lot of years where it was like why can't everything just be avocado toast (laughs) i do think wait are you saying that because you think these are i know i thought my issue with that story was that notion of i'm like are people really gonna do this there's a lot going on we're asking a lot and i felt like we had a lot of good recipes but sometimes we would there would be we would ask one step too many for the average reader slash home cook well i would implore the average home cook listening to this right now to try the spicy tofu crumbles because i actually do think those are pretty easy you just don't don't need to do the other nine things in the story i don't even remember what they were so this one you got the extra firm tofu you cut into slices and then what then you marinate it uh no so this one rather than marinating it raw you actually pan fry the slices first then you let them cool and you tear them into crumbles and then you marinate those in a mixture Uh, of i think it's fresh chili soy sauce mirin sriracha sriracha. vinegar sesame oil and ginger Mm -hmm. and then you toss it all together and And that's it it looks bright red and and the idea i mean and the whole idea for that story as we said was meal prep so this was a preparation that you could keep in the fridge for five days you know you could Mm -hmm. just marinate it and then you keep in the fridge and you just use it you pull it out and you use it to throw on a grain bowl or toss with some noodles or what have you i always i'm a 
Yeah. I always feel a little conflicted in that I make fun of people for meal prepping, but then anytime I come home, I'm like, oh my God, I have those pinto that beans that I forgot about. And that then I'm you like, did yes. ahead. And you I'm can... so psyched about that. Chris, you gave us some uh, well, recommendations. So the funny thing about those tofu crumbles is like, in the context of that story that had all those things going on, you're not the only person who kind of like has fixated on them. Like Amanda oh, really? Shapiro, editor of Healthyish, she's also all about them. And actually, as recently as like a month ago, we kind of riffed on those crumbles to make our vegetarian taco bowls, which was kind of like a, a tofu picadillo kind of like taco bowl situation. I wish I had been in the conversation where we <laughs> decided that name. Again, that sounds like something you served at your Oberlin Co-op, Chris. I yeah. I, when you look on the on the on the on the menu taped at the side of the fridge, like Tuesday, vegetarian taco bowls by Chris. I know this is something that people genuinely search for. You know, oh and, SEO. Yeah, it, it makes sense. No, I get it. And the photo is amazing looking. It makes me want to eat it. So, can you talk us through this one? Yeah. So basically, it, it's taking that idea of those tofu crumbles, but we're cooking the crumbles. So we're kind of searing them out, crumbled tofu in olive oil. And then we are kind of showering it with a rogues gallery of spices, Ooh, including rogues gallery. <laughs> I love that expression. Um, coriander, ancho chili powder, cumin, fennel seed, tomato paste. Um, you know, cooking that out, then just like a little bit of water, just to get a sauce. And then that becomes like you know, it's your answer to like this is your your vegetarian kind of like taco filling that you could do in like. Oh my God, like in a hard shell taco, it would just sort of slay. You know, part of including that step of crisping up the tofu just adds all this kind of craggy, you know, wonderful brown bits and kind of concentrated texture. Also, you, also a bit of flavor. You get that, oh, yeah. the, 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 the Maillard sort of moments. Yeah. As like, yeah. I mean, tofu does take on, you know, kind of like really interesting kind of like browning characteristics. Also um, impossible to burn. Yeah, which you makes can it really nice. Like you can just go, you it, can go really hard. It'll it'll desiccate and turn into just like <laughs> you know, like a, a like a rock before it actually burns. You know, so I I love that one for that. You know, but yeah, this was totally inspired by by tofu crumbles. Also, just to side with Chris, I would a hundred percent eat a vegetarian taco bowl. Are you kidding? I, you know who has an amazing vegetarian <clears throat> taco bowl? Bye, Chloe. Uh, oh God! Lowercase b. Uh, <laughs> no, I. To be honest, that's probably what I I cobble together for lunch most days. Mm. There's just something about the phrase taco bowl. I know that's just a little sad. It's been mm. yeah. You know, I was saying this is interesting compared to the other recipes we've talked about. This sort of takes the tofu in a southwest sort of direction. Yes, totally. It is versatile like that, and it's 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 employed well here. Yeah, so you can find all these recipes on the BA. And in terms of the silken tofu, you ha you talked about the kimchi chigai that you did for your Korean home cooking story last mm -hmm. year. Uh, there's also the one that, speaking of Amanda Shapiro, editor of Healthyish, and there's a tofu and kimchi stew uh, that's super easy. Very similar vibes, yeah. those two recipes. Kind both. of a fiery red broth. Mm -hmm. And then just that. I love it, but even you look at the photo, and there's that cube of silken tofu, and mm -hmm. it's just pure white yes it's so great yes. and you kind of want one bite of this with one bite of that and that balance yeah and all those like the depth to those like you know korean you know kind of pantry staples like gochujang in there just like creates like just bottomless depth to the your flavor you know i'm a uh, i'm a tofu guy now all right welcome silken tofu is next on your list i think i'm gonna master it christina che thanks so much thank you chris morocco thanks for coming thank you very much 
The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced and edited by Emma Wartsman, with additional programming help from Carrie Polis and Elise Inamine. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wartsman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to reach out to us about this episode or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.